0: Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. All right, we're live, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields. Founder of the Jew3 Project, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, um, Reverend Brandon Harris. Welcome, Brandon.
1: Glad to be here. Thank you, Lisa.
0: (laughs) Thank you for joining me. I met Brandon years ago in Atlanta at the Academy of Preachers, uh, which is a a great experience for the both of us. And it really stretched me. And it's the reason why I even do courageous conversations. So that experience Mm. was definitely helpful to me, and it really stretched me. So I met Brandon there, and fast forward this past weekend, we met again at the Missio Alliance Conference, Um, and so reconnected there, and I was like, man, it'll be cool to really have you on the podcast to talk about some of the stuff we talked about this past weekend in D.C., so welcome again, Brandon, and tell our our viewers just a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, thank you again, Lisa. I'm glad to be here. Uh, A little bit about myself, Uh, I serve as the Protestant chaplain. To the Law Center and Main Campus at Georgetown University. Uh, I'm one of three Protestant chaplains that we have on staff at the university. Uh, originally from Rochester, New York, went to college at Lincoln University, Pennsylvania, uh, where I studied political science and religion, and then went on to seminary at Canberra School of Theology at Emory University, where I uh, got my master's divinity and certificates in black church studies and Baptist studies.
0: That's awesome. That's awesome. So I think it's cool uh for you to give a little bit of background about your church's church experience too because i think we have a similar background as far as being shaped by different denominations so tell us where you started uh church-wise and and where are you now
1: uh i am a ecumenical mutt uh, is what my family calls me uh so i was raised in the church of god in christ um so you know you can't join in you got to be born in Uh, (laughs) i was born in kojic uh but I was educated in reformed and evangelical schools from fourth grade through 12th grade. Um, so grew up in uh, with a foot uh, in the reformed and evangelical circles uh, along with my Kojic upbringing uh, as a child. So it was a very kind of chaotic world. On one hand, folks are speaking in tongues. On the other hand, I'm reciting the Westminster Catechism. Uh, and it just became a really kind of crazy experience. Went on to college. Um, where I had experiences where I interned at Alfred Street Baptist Church uh, in Alexandria, Virginia, so gained experiences in the National Baptist Convention, uh, preached and served at churches affiliated with the Methodist Church, United Methodist Church, uh, went on to a United Methodist Seminary uh, where I served as a fellow at a Presbyterian church, PCUSA, uh, and was ordained and licensed as a Baptist uh, in the Progressive National Baptist Convention and American Baptist Churches, USA. And Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. So I've been all over the place, uh, and it's it's had an, all of these backgrounds have had an influence on who I am. Uh, but ordained Baptist, but ecumenical, mud, as you say.
0: <laughs> That's awesome, and I I too can identify with uh, just interacting in different denominations. So it was we when we talked about that point, we clicked immediately because we understood each other in that regard. Um, so. You told me um, about Lincoln, something I didn't know about it being, um, not only it being an HBCU, but it also was started by, it has a Reformed Presbyterian background. I think that's something many people don't know. Could you give us like a little bit of background about Lincoln?
1: Yeah, uh, so I am a proud Lincoln alum. Lincoln was founded by the Presbytery of Chester. um, And so the Presbyterian Church uh, came together because uh, African-Americans were not allowed to go to Princeton University. Uh, to study, to be ministers at that time. Uh, And so there was a young man, uh, James Ralston Amos, who wanted to go on and become a minister and missionary in Liberia. So the Presbytery came together and said, well, we won't let you into Princeton. We'll start a new school for y'all. So in Lincoln's charter is that Lincoln would be uh, a school that God would be glorified by Africa. Um, And it was a heavily reformed uh, Presbyterian school. Uh, It had its own Presbyterian church on campus, where students served as ruling elders uh, of this church, um, graduates such as Lincoln Hughes, Nehemiah uh, Zekwey, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, all uh, Thurgood Marshall were all undergraduates at Lincoln. But for the church, Lincoln has had a quiet but heavy influence. So Henry Mitchell, uh, the dean of black preaching, uh, is one of our oldest living alums. Uh, G. Rod Wilmore uh, is a graduate of Lincoln. Um, Francis Grimke who was a Presbyterian minister in D.C. in the 1800s, uh, was a Lincoln graduate. Uh, so Lincoln has produced uh, a number of ministers and scholars in the church. Uh, and at one point, the statistics were that 50 percent of all black Presbyterian ministers came through Lincoln.
0: Oh, wow. That's that's amazing. That's definitely a little known fact. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you for educating us on that. Today, we want to talk about um, apologetics across denominational lines. Why do you think, Brandon, that's important?
1: We are living um, in an age where denominations are important, uh, and I never want to negate the essentials of belonging to a denominational body. But with uh, the rise of nuns, uh, the rise of unchurched folks, uh, the number of interfaith marriages, uh, the number of in- Christian body uh, interdenominational marriages, uh, it's important that we build bridges uh, across our denominations to present a common front of what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, so at my work at Georgetown, this is really kind of essential to what we do. Uh, we serve an ecumenical, multicultural, multi-ethnic student body. who, When we gather for our Sunday night worship service, they're Presbyterian, they're Pentecostal, they're non-denominational, they're Evangelical, they're Episcopalian. And somehow we have to come together and say, what's our core? What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, what does it mean to be Christian uh, on this campus in the 21st century Uh, In this current political moment, uh, who are we called to be as the body of Christ? And if we're hung up on the fact that, you know, well, you sprinkle and I dunk, while they are essential to the faith uh, and essential to what we believe, what's the core narrative about baptism and what does that mean? Uh, What's the core narrative about salvation, right? Uh, What is the core narrative of what it means to be disciples of Jesus Christ? And so I think it's important for us to focus on our essentials. Uh, rather than majoring in the minors. Mm-hmm.
0: So. Yeah. And I think that's so crucial as far as being in that in that kind of environment and that's your environment is really the 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 environment of the world. Yep. And so <laughs> when we kind of get stuck in our little bubble we yep. miss that there's so much going on in the in the culture outside of our denomination outside of our church. Mm-hmm. So it's very important if we're going to do apologetics to understand that what has been the most challenging thing
1: in that I would say the kind of the biggest challenge really um, is because we all have different views on what the essentials are at times Mm -hmm. uh, trying to clarify that voice Um, and so that takes work uh, that takes uncomfortable moments Uh, I, I think a prime example uh, and I'll just use this, is we serve uh, Holy Communion, the Holy Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it in your tradition, uh, every week at our Sunday service. Well, if I'm up there presiding as a Baptist minister, I have particular views about what that means. But then the Methodist minister standing next to me has a completely different view uh, of what that means for him. The Presbyterian minister, who's on my other side, she has a completely different view of what that means to her, Right. And so here we are trying to gather around a common table, um, but our theology around the table is completely different. Um, And so that can be a a challenge. It's a good challenge, uh, but sometimes that can kind of get in the way of how do we come around our essentials?
0: Mm -hmm. Do you think it, how do you think we have those conversations? What what is a strategy that you would encourage our listeners to employ in in those difficult situations?
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the things is being bold. Um, but also being humble. Uh, So being bold and being humble go hand in hand, right? You have to be clear about this is where I'm coming from. Uh, This is what, through my study of scripture and through church tradition and history, I've come to believe. Uh, But at the same time, to have the humility to understand, listen to what someone else is saying. Uh, There are gifts uh, that can add to our particular bodies by learning about what a denomination uses. Uh, Prime example is when we have a student crisis sometimes, there may not be a theological resource uh, in my own particular tradition that I can draw upon. But what I can draw upon is the Book of Common Prayer, right? And if I realize that it's part of a wider Christian tradition, I'm not focused on, well, this is the Episcopalians' prayer book. That belongs to just them. You know, I can't use the prayers they use. Rather than focusing on, here's resources from the wider church tradition that can help us to make sense of our faith. And I think that that takes a level of humility, Uh, in doing that, and a sense of openness, uh, and realizing that, yes, we draw certain lines and boundaries, but we should also allow ourselves to be permeable, uh, to learn and grow and understand from the broader church.
0: Mm -hmm. And I think that leads us to our next question, us understanding um, from the broader church, from people who have already been doing things in the church community. When we were in D.C., we were talking about um, the new wave of Church plants and sometimes the tension between church planning and the African American church that's already established. And you told me that it was interesting you being at Ebenezer, which is a historic place because that's where MLK served, mm-hmm. um, and you working in campus ministry there. When church plants would come into that environment, they would say, make uh, statements like, Well, you know, we're bringing the gospel to this neighborhood and it's offensive to the black churches that are already there because it's like what what have we been doing? We haven't been doing gospel work this whole time and how the language kind of um is problematic and causes tension and them not even coming to the churches that are already there to consult with them and see you know what work has already been taking place and how it causes a tension um in that work can you uh dive into that a little deeper
1: yeah uh i i think they're uh our tensions, right, between uh, new church plants, right, and historic churches, and they're both necessary, uh, right? We we need our historic congregations that have been anchoring us in the faith for for ages. We also need newer congregations that are going to do the work in innovative ways that can always be done by traditional churches. But one of the problems is, uh, is that I think a lack of humility causes one to uh, come into a place, say, this particular neighborhood uh, hasn't had the gospel, we're here to now plant this church, uh, because we're young and hip, and we've got this new lens on, on the gospel, right, uh, that the church hasn't been doing, and I'm like, hold up, wait a minute, this church has been here, uh, for generations now, preaching and proclaiming the gospel, uh, and one of the things I always encourage people to do, and I was taught this by one of my mentors at Ebenezer, uh, Reverend Dr. Raphael Warnock, and by the Reverend Michael Wortham, who was our young adult pastor at Ebenezer, was always put your ear to the ground in a new ministry context. Walk the neighborhood. Uh, see where people hang out. See where the gospel is already at work. So part of being in campus ministry, uh, there was rather than me arriving and saying, this is how we're going to do campus ministry, this is how we're going to reach millennials, this is how we're going to reach students, is I need to put my ear to the ground. Uh, I needed to see where was God at work. I needed to meet the pastors of the other churches in the neighborhood. Because it it wasn't just about me uh, and my particular congregation, but I was thinking at the same time, if we're attracting young adults, if we're attracting college students, we may not be the particular congregation that those students feel called to. But what's a church down the street that I can send them to if we are not the congregation that they feel called to? What other resources can I draw upon? So I think it it requires a sense of, history right uh and understanding and the willingness to learn a community before we come in to say i'm here to bring the gospel to you now uh because i've spent you know three years in seminary uh and i go to this conference and i follow my favorite theologians you know tweets uh and i'm always you know uh, retweeting their statuses and now i think i know it all i'm come i'm here to bring jesus to you jesus has been here and the holy spirit has already been working uh it's time for you to listen and see where you can join in the spirits movement in that community.
0: Yeah. Because there was so much more and work that's been done before a new person steps into a a community. Oh yeah, Um, Sometimes the work isn't as obvious as we would hope uh, because you have to spend time to discover the work that's been going on to peel back the layers and then you'll see, oh wow, they've been doing some great work. Um, How is, how is, how has your interaction been sometimes with other denominations or other people that may be more extreme, extremely conservative? How has, how has their view of where you go to school um, kind of maybe offended you or you were like, man, you didn't take the time to get to know me Mm -hmm. um, in that context?
1: Uh, I I think one of the the challenges that we, we have, especially from, uh, very conservative sisters and brothers, uh, is that they they immediately see the school that you went to, right? So you went to a mainline uh, seminary, right? Uh, Candler is part of Emory University. It's a United Methodist Seminary. Uh, and so they immediately see your school and they're like, oh, you must be extremely theologically progressive. Uh, or I'll meet uh, folks who saw that I worked at particular congregations, and they're like, oh, you must be extremely theologically liberal. Right, And so you get caught in this crossfire of folks who either think you're extremely liberal or extremely conservative because of your background. And I I think rather than understanding uh, the depth and breadth uh, that can occur uh, by attending a mainline seminary, I purposely chose, uh, when I was graduating from college and looking for seminary, I wanted to be around those who I could learn from, who I agreed with, and those who I disagreed with. Uh, I wanted a seminary that was going to be broad what I consider broad church, right? I wanted faculty who were uh, theologically progressive and I wanted faculty who were theologically conservative so that I could be challenged and pushed and honed on what are my core, what's my essentials, what do I believe is the, the heart of the gospel? And I think we can learn from all of the edges of the church, right? Uh, I can listen to John Piper, Uh, I can listen to uh, the Gospel Coalition, right? And I maintain a subscription to the Christian century. uh, And I read what Amy Butler is producing at Riverside Church. uh, And I am uh, studying the latest in womanist theology. And I'm also studying at the same time what's the latest coming out of Reformed uh, Baptist context, right? Uh, Because it only enhances who we're called to be as the gospel. Uh, Because when a student is coming to me, uh, or a parishioner is coming, uh, and they're like, what's the heart of the gospel? I often find that the heart of the gospel is not at its fringes, but at its center. Mm-hmm. Uh, so,
0: How would you articulate the heart of the gospel to those um, who you interact with?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I, I am an old school Baptist, right? For me, the heart of the gospel is that we uh, have been saved through Christ, uh, and that salvation in Jesus Christ is both personal and social. Uh, We used to say at Ebenezer uh, that Ebenezer Baptist Church is an urban-based global ministry dedicated to uh, individual growth and social transformation, that we've been saved by faith through grace in Christ. But that salvation doesn't mean that, all right, now my sins are just done with. But it's got a global uh, and social context to it. That means the redemption of all of creation, right? So that means we we need to be mindful of creation care. It means that the redemption of society. So that means we need to be pursuing social justice. Uh, it's no good if I've got a, you know, vertical relationship with Christ and I don't have a horizontal one that transforms the so. mm-hmm. world.
0: Yeah, and I think that's so that's so key um, in just being able to listen to all those voices uh, because you're going to encounter people that have certain belief systems and they have legitimate reasons that they believe that and if you dismiss it dismiss it because it's not your belief system then you're not going to get any uh any any progress in the conversation and it's going to be a barrier and and people know us by the way that we love each other and if we're not loving each other it's like sometimes i'm like you know it's going to be Episcopalians in heaven like the certain you know it's gonna be Methodist in heaven, you know it's gonna be Reformed no. uh, reform people in heaven, you know it's gonna be Kojic people in heaven. No. Um so <laughs> when you think about that, you're like, Okay, you have to learn how to interact on earth just yep. like you're gonna interact in heaven. <laughs> so I think people people sometimes for forget that. Um when we speak on the social justice piece, mm-hmm. um, that's really important in the I, that it has really been pushed in in the black church. You know, social justice isn't something we can disconnect from because it affects us um, the most in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think that we help when we're having conversations with more conservative white evangelicals, them to understand the plight of African-Americans in this country, especially with all uh, that's been going on. We just had a murder over the weekend. Um, by a 15-year-old boy um, that is extremely sad and I'm still trying to process. How do we help um, our brothers and sisters that are white that don't understand?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, with my, my conservative evangelical uh, white sisters and brothers, for me, the conversation has been, uh, and I've often phrased it to them, what good is the gospel if it's not about the business of changing and transforming the world? What good is the gospel uh, if you say you see me, uh, but you don't care about what weighs me down? You don't care about food deserts in my community. Uh, what, what good is it for you to go do? I, I posted a controversial status once. I said, you know, maybe we should stop these inner city mission trips uh, if you don't actually care about the salvation of that community. If you can't speak up uh, against the death of uh, young African-American women and men, uh, then why are you going to preach the gospel in these communities? You, I can't preach the gospel to you if I don't care about you. Uh, and so that's been my, my, my conversation. I was uh, on staff at a large evangelical Presbyterian church, uh, one the only brother on staff at that time, uh, when uh, Philando Castile and Alan Sterling were killed, Right? That morning, I had to preach at an early morning communion service. And I, it's going through my, my head, what do I say uh, <laughs> to this congregation about where I am and where I'm at? But I think it was having to be honest and just say, as Christians, it is our gospel duty uh, to care about our, our sister and brother. And we are lying uh, and portraying the gospel, uh, you know, as First John reminds us, how can I say— uh, I love my sister or brother um how can i say i love god whom i have not seen but i can't love my sister or brother right uh and so i think we're portraying the gospel if if you can't do that
0: yeah yeah and if you can't speak up lando Castillo, alton sterling um jordan at mm-hmm. then i think it's something seriously wrong um mm-hmm. with uh with how you view african americans um we were talking at lunch with um, Dr. Esau McCauley and Natasha um about at a restaurant that I think is amazing, Ken Quarter. if yeah. you're ever oh, yeah. go there. That was amazing. Um, but we were talking about um the fact that sometimes when we're invited to a white evangelical context, we they don't invite those who are actually African Americans. uh, that have the credentials as everyone else on the on the um on the on the ticket so we'll have like PhD 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 white and then when it comes to African American we have artists mm-hmm. and so it causes us it causes us to recycle this narrative that blacks aren't um academic and I feel like that's st- extremely problematic um that we are only picked to speak when we are artists in in some conservative evangelical spaces. But there's plenty of academics. So to have, you know, a whole, a, a lot of uh, PhDs that are white, and then have an artist. Sometimes it can be problematic to how to the narrative we're perpetuating to the culture. Uh, would you agree with that assessment?
1: Oh, I would. I would completely agree. And I think part of the problem is right um, is. Oh, they're not out there. Oh, they're out there. The question is, where are you looking? Because there are black evangelical academics in white evangelical spaces who are there, who have PhDs, who have master's degrees, who have the background. But here's the other part uh, that I challenge my white evangelical sisters and brothers in, is you've got to stop looking at the label of what seminary somebody went to, to think, so everybody's not going to go to Gordon Conwell uh, or... Trinity Evangelical, somebody might have gone to Union Seminary in New York City. Somebody might have gone to Yale Div or Duke Div or any of these other mainline seminaries uh, and might theologically identify as evangelical, but because they didn't go to your particular schools, right? And they might be ordained A and B, they might be National Baptist, uh, they then don't even look at those circles. There are so many African Americans who have what I, I would say are kind of core evangelical doctrine and theology, who are Presbyterian USA, right, who uh, are, like myself, uh, in the American Baptist churches, uh, who are in white mainline denominational bodies, um, who but on some co- core theological principles would identify as evangelical. Uh, and so I think it's about broadening your horizons. Uh, and, again, that humility piece, being able to listen to those who might travel outside of your circles. Mm-hmm.
0: I think that's very crucial. What are the books um, that have helped shape and develop you that you would uh, refer uh, want our listeners to to read? Yeah, uh,
1: the, the first immediately is "Jesus and the Disinherited" by Howard Thurman. Uh, that really I, I led students through that this year has been kind of central uh, to my own study and growth. Uh, hmm, that's a good question, Lisa. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. You know, I, I'm really biographies are, are kind of what shape uh, my, my thought, right? Uh, so the autobiography of Reverdy e. Ransom, um, who was a social gospel AME preacher, um, trying to think. Those two really have kind of been. Kind of central, at least right now in this in this stage and phase. Uh, I read um, a lot of Tim Keller, uh, Teresa Fry Brown, who was my advisor in seminary. Uh, I can't just list one one of her books, um, but all of her writing has kind of helped shape kind of who I am and encouraged me, right, uh, to be someone who embraces having a foot in the evangelical world and having a foot in the mainline world. Um, so those are those are some of the books that have influenced me. Mm-hmm.
0: That's what's up. Um, how would people get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, uh, you can get in contact with me uh, via email at bh631 at georgetown.edu uh, or via Facebook, it's simply uh, Brandon Harris. Um, and either either way, that way would be great.
0: You know what we didn't touch on? What uh, I think this is really cool and important for people to know. What was your uh, major emphasis in seminary?
1: Yeah, uh, so my work and research focuses on preaching to the black middle class. Uh, My key kind of thesis is that uh, preaching to the black middle class is a unique uh, study of history, uh, that black middle class congregations have their own history and practices and theology, uh, and that trying to find a voice to the black middle class experience uh, is necessary. All of us uh, didn't grow up in the hood, uh, right? Some of us grew up wearing J. Crew uh, and, and listening to Bach. Uh, <laughs> and, how <do> you pre- <laughs> and how do you preach uh, to folks who know Tupac and Bach, right? Um, who, whose parents were our professionals. Uh, and especially in dealing with young adult ministry in the black middle class context, what does it mean uh, to live uh, with that double uh, consciousness of Dubois? Uh, How do you live in a world that is both black and white uh, and preach to their souls? Uh, So that's what most of my research is on.
0: Yeah, that's important to me because, you know, that's at the heart of a lot of the work I do. And uh, Marvin McMichael, also, I'm sure that was a part of, of your research to Dr. McMickle's book, Preaching to the Black Middle Class.
1: It was. And whenever I'm I'm home in Rochester, New York, I try to stop by his office and pick his brain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's a great, great guy. I think I want to ask one more question because I think, it was, it's important for people to understand. I could say all the time when I go to, in some circles that, that are white and I say what I'm doing, the whole, the first thing is said to me, is, oh, wow, you're doing inner city ministry. And I'm like, mm, no, not really. But sometimes, <laughs> but it's not limited to that because I'm black. Um, and then what does inner city mean? I, I say this so many times, what is the inner city with gentrification? Like, what does that even mean? Does mm-hmm. that mean we're doing, um, we're ministering at Soul Cycle or Trader Joe's? Cause that's what the, that's what U Street is starting to look like, you know, DC. so I mean, I don't know how we're going to redefine the inner city, uh, redefine that in light of, in light of uh, gentrification, but that's a whole nother, I could be on that for hours, yeah. but you said something interesting to me when you're talking about cu- curriculums and guides for, African-Americans like there's not many out there because there's either ministry guides that are dedicated to inner-city African-Americans quote-unquote inner city African-Americans and then there is devoted to more white um, evangelicals so there's not a ministry guide for um, or curriculum for black middle-class college students that fits their unique needs about struggling with identity and also, um you made an interesting comment about the Jamal thing that I want you to share here if you, if you don't mind
1: definitely uh you know so like like you said either the the materials church based materials for it, it's Sunday school discipleship christian formation uh it's inner city ministry or it's you know like it's white evangelicals but but I always say uh in the congregations that I've served there are two two different types of jamals one of the you know primary targets is, well, Jamal comes from a, and I, I hate to stereotype, from a broken home, inner city, and our Sunday school curriculum is about this Jamal. But when my, my suburban high schoolers and college students uh, in my congregational settings uh, come to me, they're like, my name's Jamal. I live in suburban Virginia. Uh, I play field hockey on the weekends. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out what it means to be black and Christian these spaces, right? I'm I'm trying to figure out who am I as a human being, right? When I face microaggressions every day at school, come to church, I get picked on because, you know, I may talk white or quote unquote, or uh, because I play lacrosse or uh, because I play soccer. Um, So those are the contexts that I'm trying to address. How do we do Christian formation in a particularly black middle-class environment, which is a unique uh, sort of context? And they're, black middle class congregations when to go, we're a black middle class church, right? But you can identify them. Uh, you can tell, uh, you know, if half the membership uh, is in Jack and Jill and the Lynx and the boule right? <laughs> uh, how do you preach to these folks? How do you do Christian formation for these folks uh, in a way that helps them to understand their day-to-day lives?
0: Yeah, and I think that's so crucial uh, for people to understand that. People to understand just... The variety of, of different, there's so many different types of African-Americans.
1: Yeah. That, there's no one way.
0: Yeah. So you have to, you have to be uh, flexible with how you do ministry and be able to know your context and figure out what's the best ways to, to address that particular context. Well, thank you, Brandon. This has been a very rich time. Is there anything else you would like to leave with our listeners?
1: Well, I just thank you again, Lisa. Uh, I appreciate being on here. Uh, You know, if if anything, I would would close with is, uh, you know, be open to whoever and wherever God places you um, and to to learn from the breadth of the Christian tradition. Uh, I I think as we move into the future, as we try to do apologetics, particularly in black context, we're going to have to work together. AME folks and Baptists and Kojic folks and Apostolics, we're going to have to find a way to come together to present the gospel uh, to a generation that doesn't care what background you're from. Uh, they just want to know who Jesus is.
0: So, Awesome. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jew 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app, by searching the App Store, Google Play, or Apple App Store, by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage Scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the g 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.